Hi, welcome to the ESVS Podcasts. My name is Vaiva Dabrovoskaite. In previous podcasts, we have been exploring some of the latest innovations in endovascular therapy. Today, we will cover one of the endovascular treatment options for heavily calcified plaques in peripheral occlusive artery disease, intravascular lithotripsy or shockwave. We will start with some background information on the morphology of calcified lesions and also dig deeper into the available evidence of different technologies, possible pitfalls and handy tricks with two experts accompanying me today. Dr. Lorenzo Patrone, an interventional radiologist based in London, Northwest Healthcare NHS Trust, United Kingdom. Hello, Lorenzo. Hello, hi, and thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Michel Bossier, a vascular surgeon at the University Hospital of Bern, Switzerland. Welcome, Michel. Hello, everybody. Thank you both for joining me today. Just a short recap of your background. I think it is safe to say that both of you are active but responsible users of innovation in the endovascular treatment of vascular pathology. Both are involved in research with a primary interest in PAD. You are also educators present on many podiums and the ESVS podcast today. I'm very much looking forward to a fruitful discussion on the topic. Lorenzo, let's start with the basics. How would you define a severely calcified PAD lesion? Actually, it's a great question because essentially this is what we ask ourselves every day in our cath lab. Essentially, we need to de define uh, if uh, calcified lesion we want to uh, we want to define it in in an angiographic way. So there are some uh, different ways to judge. One of the most uh, uh, common uh, ways to judge uh, uh, calcified lesion is the PAX system. Essentially, I think what we see in everyday life is uh, very easy to see the calcium on uh, X-ray. And actually, of course, depends if the lesion is completely calcified, if like uh, 40 centimeters of lesion, if it's something around 10 or 15. So personally speaking, I judge the calcification. I stage it in, uh, in a sort of, um, um, you know, in the way it presents at the level of a single segment, but also the length of the calcification itself along the vessels. If it's something short, of course, it's more easy to treat. If it's something very long, then it becomes more challenging. All right, so Lorenz already touched up on that. Michelle, can you walk us through those available scoring systems? And is there any reliable evidence to support them? Well, uh, as Lorenz already mentioned, we have the, the PAC score, the, the Peripheral Arterial Calcium Scoring System. Uh, another one which is uh, commonly used is the PARC scoring system. This is a peripheral academic research consortium system. Um, and as mentioned, both are angiography-based um, systems. So you look at the if the calcium is unilateral or bilateral. Um, bilateral, of course, meaning more severe calcification. And the difference between both of them is that the one, the PAC system, uses a cutoff length of 5 centimeters. And the PARC system just looks at the entire lesion length and if it's 50% or, or less. There are also other ones uh, based on CT scans. We all know them from the coronary system. Um, but majority of, of my patients, of our patients, they have a duplex ultrasound before intervention. So we don't have these kind of CT scans uh, um, always available. Uh, regarding data, there is a, a positive data on the accuracy of these systems, uh, if they're reliable or not. So we still need some work done there, I think. 
All right, and do they, those uh, calcium scoring systems correlate with, the, for example, Rutherford classification in CLTI patients? Well, uh, they do not, because Rutherford will only tell you something about the severity of the disease, uh, focusing on the clinical manifestation of it, and uh, those calcium scores just focus on how much calcium is there and uh, how much is not there. They don't look at patient uh, um, clinical manifestations. To continue on those scoring systems, are there, is there any consensus between them? Which one do you use in your practice and why? So you mentioned that you use PACs mostly, right? PACs and PARC are the most commonly used, I think. Lorenzo, may you walk us through the main morphological differences influencing treatment choice between PAD below and above the knee? Yeah, sure. It's uh, Many say it's a different disease. I mean, it, the important thing, as we said before, is to be guided also by the Rutherford classification apart from just the calcium. So we'll see how much aggressive we need to be based on the symptoms of the patient. This is something we need to keep in mind. We don't have to, and I, I say that as a radiologist, so it's very uh, uh, you know, impressive because I say we don't have to treat images, but we need to treat patients. So essentially, you know, it's very important to understand what's the disease at the level of uh, the, the artery and how aggressive we need to be in treatment. And this is also where all the tools are coming uh, are coming available, needs to be used, you know, and, and the different lesion needs to be treated in different ways. Uh, I mean, we usually, I think we said, we're still ignorant about uh, many of the lesions. We now divide the lesions in mainly two groups, the calcified one and the non-calcified ones. I think for the calcific, it's pretty clear. For the non-calcific plaque, we have a lot of different materials which can be present. I mean, there are some nice studies with the seven Tesla MRIs, which are showing that, you know, thrombos is very much different compared to collagen, for example. And I think that by knowing the anatomy and the pathology, or the vessel better, with better, of course, imaging, with better knowledge, we're going to treat also our patients in a better way. I have encountered a few studies on the PAD morphology by Dr. Trisha Roy, so who's interested, they can take a look at their studies. I will add them in the show notes. And now let's focus on possible endovascular treatment options for infraingrinal lesions. Michelle, could you group those by lesions morphology? What would you prefer in which kind of lesions? Well, I think uh, everyone will disagree with everything because everyone is having their own algorithm. I think the most important part is what Lorenzo already told us, and that is, okay, we need to focus on which lesions are calcified, which lesions are not calcified. If I have a short, non-calcified lesion, fibrotic lesion, I still go for POBA and DCB as my uh, favorite option. Um, in case I see a flow-limiting dissection, I use uh, spot stenting. Um, then, of course, we have these kind of uh, more calcified lesions. Then we have different options. We have uh, cutting balloons, scoring balloons in order to crack them open. Uh, we have uh, high-pressure balloons. Uh, we can do atrectomy, um, mainly using, of course, a filter system because of the uh, risk of embolization. Um, if we encounter extremely severe calcification, um, there is the way to go with the intravascular lithotripsy. Or, as, as mentioned already, uh, the, the cutting scoring balloons uh, followed by DCB. Um, if I go subintimal in these heavily calcified lesions, I probably would go directly for drug looting stenting, especially in those long CTOs, because the data is out there that they seem to work very nice. Um, if, we, if I encounter a restenotic lesion after previous open surgery or, after, or at the level of the bypass anastomosis, um, I'm a big fan of uh, atrectomy, 
uh, with DCB, also for instant uh, occlusion. I'm a big fan of uh, some way of atrectomy with DCB, especially in Tosaka 3. If you're looking at BTK, it's an entire different playing field. Um, I don't think we can compare both levels. There is not a lot, lot of evidence for DCB in BTK field, so it's mainly POBA or some kind of atrectomy device. And the, the toughest ones are the one where you can squeeze your wire through, but you can't pass with anything else. For these kind of lesions, I would think about uh, orbital atrectomy. So this is a little bit uh, short version of my algorithm. Before we proceed, I will summarize the information we have covered so far. So we have non-compliant cutting, scoring balloons, atherectomy, and stenting as options for endovascular treatment of heavily calcified lesions. We can also use high-pressure balloon dilations with non-compliant balloons. Still, those may not be enough to fracture calcium and achieve vessel expansion, and they may cause barotrauma-related dissection or perforation of the vessel. As a result, drug-coated balloons placed in inadequately prepped vessels may lose their antiproliferative effect altogether. And all of the techniques mentioned above may cause distal embolization, jeopardizing the long-term results of the treatment. Let's move forward. Uh, what about the evidence and the mechanism of shockwave IVL? How does IVL work to treat calcified peripheral arterial disease, Lorenzo? That the you know the calcification will stay in the intima, the calcification will stay in the media, and actually many of the uh, possible uh, treatments that we mentioned before, like atherectomy, they don't really work on the medial calcification. So shockwave works uh, with uh, uh, you know it is a transmission of energy in um, the transforming uh, vapor bubbles, kind of uh, waves you know, which break the calcium. They don't care about if the calcium stays in the intima or stays in the media, especially, for example, like in the BTK, where it's demonstrated the calcium stays in the media more. These kind of microwaves, they uh, crack the calcium, making uh, a change in the compliance of the vessel. That means that when these waves uh, hit calcium, and, you know, we know that from uh, the emitters uh, within the balloon, they have, we have cycles, and every cycle is made by different pulses. All these kind of uh, little uh, uh, pulses are hitting the calcium, breaking the little pieces. And by doing this, you know, the vessel is much more compliant to any kind of treatment you do after. You can do POBA, you can do DCB, or any kind of other treatment, even stenting. You know, the vessel behaves better. Of course, as a, as a peripheral arterial disease uh, specialist, we try not to stent in, compared to cardiologists, where actually cardiologists use shockwave in order to prepare the vessel uh, perfectly in order to proceed with the perfect expansion of the stent. We try to use shockwave in order to prevent stenting, and it's also, we'll go through this, I'm sure, but it's also with the, the randomized control trial showed. Far less dissections because, you know, the balloon is inflated at low atmosphere, thus just, you know, being a, a way to deliver the shock caused by uh, the lectures, and actually uh, less dissection means less stenting. So shockwave is, is a good friend of mine because of this. To understand the underlying physics of this technology in depth and the differences in the mechanism of action between different endovascular treatment options, I encourage our listeners to take a look at state-of-the-art review paper published in 2021 by Dean Kereakis and his colleagues, which I will add to the show notes too. As a teaser, Lorenzo, can you explain briefly how it works causing an effect specifically on the calcified plaques without damaging the rest of the vessel wall or the surrounding tissues? Correct. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, you know, we need to go back a little bit with history 
of lithotripsy. Lithotripsy came out uh, very soon in order to treat uh, brain tumors. This was the first uh, uh, possible usage. Then it moved with extra vascular lithotripsy uh, for kidney stones. This is what the, the lithotripsy is most known for. Essentially, at the beginning, the people were putting baths of saline in order to transmit this energy. Now they're not anymore, but the pulse, which is, uh, of course, provided by this kind of treatment, has a very high power in order to go through all the tissues from extra corporeal, uh, with an extra corporeal wave in order to reach the kidney stone. Of course, extravascular lithotripsy can be very painful for the patients. Now, when we uh, go for instead the physics around the shockwave, so the intravascular lithotripsy, you can see how the power of uh, this impulse is far lower. That means it's not less powerful on the calcium itself. It means that it works extremely well with calcification which are close to the emitters, but it doesn't affect tissues around. For example, when you go to any kind of shockwave stand or boot at the level of any kind of uh, conference, you can easily see that you can deliver the pulses at the level of uh, the balloon with a lot of calcium around, which is a fake tube made of calcium. And you can put the fingers on the tube of calcium without feeling any pain because the impulse is very much located around the emitters. This is also why it's important to choose the right side of the balloon in order to reach the walls of the vessels and provide the right therapy to uh, the vessel itself. Okay, you spoiled already quite a lot. <laughs> Michelle, where can it be used and where can it or should it not be used in the peripheral artery tree? Well, uh, there are already a lot of studies out there where, which has, have demonstrated its efficacy in treating calcified lesions, so only in calcified lesions in peripheral arteries such iliac, femoral, popliteal, also BTK. As Lorenzo also already mentioned, it helps modifying or fracturing those calcium deposits. Then we can get an optimal vessel expansion or regain our vessel compliance where I would not use it in anything where there's no calcium because there it has no effect. You need to see it as a tool to tackle calcium. Yeah? Also, they don't know yet what the effect of these sonic pressure waves is inside of a stent. So sometimes if you didn't use it, you're going to put in a stent somewhere. You have this stent compression, external stent compression from the calcium plug. They don't know yet what sonic pressure waves do with these stent structures, if you get fractures or not. I haven't seen them. I have used it outside of uh, IFU, of course. Um, also for these kind of uh, lesions, um, but yeah, that's why they don't, where they don't um, encourage using it. Now, what John just wants to add that you know, whatever there's calcium, there can be shockwave. I don't think there's any contraindication for any territory. I've seen, like, of course, use it in a common femoral, iliac arteries, in a baloney segments, but also could be SMA, superior synthetic artery, could be renal arteries, could be even carotid. I've seen it using carotid. Whatever there's calcium, and you can fracture the plaque in order to get a better vessel compliance. I don't think there's any contraindication anywhere. Right, so I guess we already covered indications and the contraindications of the technology, or would you like to add something up for contraindications? I mean, contraindication, I think, is the only thing. If the, the vessel is not calcific, then the shockwave doesn't work. All right, and what are the potential complications of this technology, and how do you recommend proceeding if facing one of them? So, I mean, I think it's extremely safe device, especially if you compare to, as Michelle said also before, to attracting devices where you need to use the uh, filter in order to prevent distal embolization. And despite the, uh, the use of distal uh, filters, then you can still develop embolization. So essentially shockwave is a very safe uh, uh, tool because it has been demonstrated in both the observational and in the randomized control trial that uh, the risk of embolization is close to zero. So essentially, 
this is always the question. Where does the calcium go? The calcium doesn't go anywhere. The calcium gets cracks, and you can see the micro fractures under the microscope of the calcium. So the vessel expands better because it's not more a rock solid lesion, but it's more like a mosaic of a little uh, chunk of calcium. So the complications are close to zero. There's no, uh, of course, uh, vessel rupture because you inflate the balloon at very low atmospheres. That we have seen already the risk of dissection extremely low. And that's why in the randomized control trial, there's less 75% stenting in the patients in the arm of a shockwave. And there's almost, you know, virtually no distal embolization. All right. Uh, one of the biggest challenges and crucial steps in the endovascular treatment of CTOs is frequently associated with suboptimal vessel expansion, which may lead to suboptimal results, increased complication risk, and reduced patency. Based on your experience, Michelle, what would be your rule of thumb to ensure proper vessel expansion? Well, there's one very important part um, is oversizing. You need to have 10% at least oversizing when using IVL. And as Lorenzo already mentioned, you're putting only four atmospheres on the IVL balloon catheter, so to speak, but you have to look at it as a catheter, not as a balloon. The function is not ballooning the vessel, the function is getting those cracks inside of your calcium. Yeah? So at least 10% oversizing, this is crucial. And if you take out one catheter, uh, don't waste any rounds of pulses, yeah? use them all if you can. Even if you're treating different segments, essentially if you have a, a popliteal which is seven millimeter and a tippy trunk which is uh, four, then put the same balloon, inflate it very gentle atmosphere. The balloon, as Michelle very well said, is just the way to deliver the pulses. It's not like you're, you need to go away from this kind of concept where the balloon needs to open the vessel because this is just a vessel prep tool. It's delivering the energy in order to prepare the vessel to the DCB or to the further therapy standing. So the important thing is like, as he said, use all the pulses and even with a single balloon, you can treat different segments despite they are different sizes. And uh, as we already touched up on, distal embolization is one of the major concerns while treating CTO lesions in general. Michelle, can you again point out the prevalence of distal embolization using IVL versus other endovascular tools? Well, I think in all these trials that we've seen and what Lorenzo already told, I think in almost in more than 2,000 patients, there's close to 0% embolization. If we compare it with atrectomy devices, uh, we will find levels even with using a filter of 2% in the literature out there. So it's a very safe technology. Uh, what essential toolkit is needed to use this technology? The M5 Plus IVL catheters, they require O14 platform, also the S4 for BTK. Everything will fit through a 6 French sheet except for the 8mm. This will require a 7 French sheet. Um, and as a tip, if you can't advance your IVL catheter through a heavy calcified lesion, it is okay to pre-dilatate, like for example, a low profile 3 millimeter, or if you, if you were in an SFA, even a 4 millimeter uh, balloon, just to make sure you have a, a small channel to pass the device through it. Yeah? And then I would suggest always start on the bottom, distally, and then work your way up approximately. How many pulse rounds are necessary? How do you know when to stop or when to continue? We already covered that you have to use all of them anyways, but maybe you can a little bit explain on this. Yeah, so you have 300 pulses per device. Um, you have 30 pulses per cycle, so you have 10 cycles of 30 pulses. Yeah. So 
as I said, if you treat a lesion, give it all your pulses. Don't waste 30 pulses, you know, you get more little cracks in the calcium and you will get more vessel, uh, nicer vessel expansion and better vessel compliance as well. And also it's very important to mention that the electrode, especially in M5+, the electrode in the middle is the one which has the most powerful wave. So essentially it's 25% more powerful. And actually if you have a, like, especially exophytic lesions, it's better to deliver the cycles with this kind of a central emitter at the level of the most stubborn calcification in order to get the best results. And always try maybe, if, especially in lesions which are very calcific, to move the balloon a little bit in order to get the emitters to touch more or less the old calcium. Yeah, and one last remark is you need to have, if you're treating a long lesion, you need to make sure you have a also overlap of your um, IVL catheter. Yeah, it's also very important so you don't miss a target. This was uh, one of the issues in the, the first uh, uh, trials, I believe. When I first got familiar with this technique, we used it only for concentric lesions, but recently I learned that it could also be used for eccentric lesions. What are your experiences on this? You know, I'm not saying my experience. I'm saying the data from literature showed that IVL works as well on eccentric calcium uh, together with the circumferential calcium. Essentially, the, some people say, okay, but if you give to eccentric calcium, you are wasting half the pulses because it's going on uh, also on a wall, which is not calcific. I mean, personally speaking, I don't care if I'm sort of wasting some. I just try to focus on the one that I use to treat my lesions. And actually, I think there are two false myths about uh, shockwave. One is the eccentric calcium, where the cutter actually works you know, as good as the concentric calcium. And one of the perfect examples could be the, the common femoral. And the other one is the subintimal uh, usage of this. I mean, if, of course, if you go subintimal for 40 centimeters, it's probably these are the lesions that you're going to stand anyway. So it's less indicated to use shockwave. But if you recanalize a lesion, which is very calcific for 10 centimeters, shockwave has a perfect usage. And I have cases where, you know, didn't require any standing with excellent vessel luminal gaining despite the occlusion, after use a shockwave in a subintimal space. I don't know if you agree with me, uh, Michel. I fully agree, Lorenzo. I just want to add, uh, as uh, Viva mentioned perforations, I haven't seen any perforation of treating eccentric lesions. So in all those trials as well, I don't think there is any mention of bleeding or rupture or anything. Yeah? Uh, we already mentioned it in the beginning of our conversation, but just to make it clear, Michel, is the procedure painful for the patient? So far, I haven't seen any uh, patients react with, with pain or anything. Uh, what you can see is just the EKG, uh, which is uh, changing a little bit. Um, but this is just a bit of the effect of the waves. It's not the heart. You're not uh, doing anything to the heart. Um, so I haven't uh, given any kind of painkillers for the patient so far. Uh, is it safe to say that the key to the successful procedure is the adequate patient selection and correct sizing of the shockwave catheter? When you put a patient table needs a treatment and actually i think the shockwave uh, really helps you in leaving nothing behind you choose the the, the correct lesion the shockwave works you should you choose a lesion which is not particularly calcific and you end up in in a poor results and now of course you know it, it will work as a balloon but you're wasting a sort of the the main peculiar effect of a shockwave yeah and uh, i'm also happy I'm, i mean in the states they're now uh, much more ahead of us um, they already have the uh, L6 device uh, available with them. So, because when we treat, sometimes when we treat iliac lesions, we have uh, eight until 10 millimeter vessels. Yeah. So this, if you need 10% oversizing, you need to have a, almost a, like an 11, 12 millimeter IVL catheter. And this is coming out hopefully somewhere soon, also in Europe. 
which will be called the L6. Um, in light of recently published ESVS antithrombotic therapy guidelines, I believe it is essential to address the following question. What is your policy on antithrombotic uh, therapy after the procedure? We are still doing dual antiplatelet therapy for eight weeks, followed by aspirin monotherapy. It doesn't, if I use uh, shockwave, it doesn't change my uh, antithrombotic therapy afterwards. I don't know, Lorenzo, with you? Yeah, the same, exactly. But we follow the nice guidelines, which are saying rivaroxaban low dose plus single antithrombotic therapy. But again, you know, as you mentioned, this the use of shockwave doesn't change anything. Because, I mean, still you're treating PAD, you're having an invasive treatment. And actually, if the use of shockwave like, brings me less stenting, I will be even happier, you know, for, for a creatinine anticoagulation to work with uh, less uh, complications. Uh, what follow-up protocol do you use or recommend in patients you have used this technique on? Are there any differences with other endo procedures because of the level of calcification? It doesn't change my standard of care. So it's exactly as with the antibiotic therapy, also follow-up is still the same. I mean, uh, we're doing it after three months, six months, and then 12 months, and then yearly. I mean, it's good because you're, you're doing more follow-up than what we do. Uh, we do a six... Uh... Uh, weeks uh, follow-up by duplex ultrasound and actually I would say that if the lesion doesn't reach the nose in uh, within six weeks and especially for the recoiling issue then you're sure that you know then the DCB will cover you for the long run and uh, we're happy then to check the patient clinically but as Michelle said standard uh, checkup for our patients no particular difference. And if in the first month's follow-up after the procedure we find significant restenosis in the location previously treated with IVL shockwave, can we use it again? Can it be used multiple times on the same lesion or would you choose other strategy or maybe a combination of a few? Personally speaking, I think that shockwave can definitely be safely used uh, different times uh, in, different, in the same lesion. But actually, I would really try to focus on why the device didn't work. So essentially, is there a technical error? As Michelle said, it didn't, didn't do enough overlap. Is there a particular place where, you know, probably the pulses were not given in the right way? So I will try to check all this. And potentially, you know, it depends also if the patient is a rate for five or six, or if the patient is a clodicone or rate for four. Uh, whenever it's a rate for five and six, I'm more keen in thinking, okay, this lesion is very stubborn. I use shockwave, I didn't have great results, but still I changed the compliance of the vessel. So I'm happy to come back there to dilate and to maybe proceed with a stent uh, compared to single shockwave therapy. But everything, every case is different. So you can't really say, you know, this is an answer for all. Yeah. And you can, you can use it multiple times. So if you uh, just wanted to use one balloon for 40 centimeter lesion, you're not going to have the same effect as using one uh, IVL catheter for a 10 centimeter lesion. Unfortunately, a lot of us still base their uh, ballooning and stenting size on the angiographic image, which doesn't give, tell you the whole uh, diameter of the vessel. So using, just use an ultrasound beforehand to check how large is your largest treat-to-treat segment and base your uh, IVL catheter on that. I think. So you have your oversizing, so you have a good expansion, a good wall contact. All right, and let's look at the evidence. In the Disrupt PAD free randomized controlled trial published last spring in the Journal of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, IVL demonstrated superior procedural uh, success compared to PTA. 
the secondary endpoint of superior one-year primary patency was achieved, confirming the consistent safety and effectiveness of IVL followed by DCB treatment to facilitate a durable approach for patients with heavily calcified femoral popliteal arteries, largely without stent required. Lorenzo and Michel, can you relate to those findings in your daily practice, and do you have any additional observations? I mean, personally speaking, I would say that, uh, first of all, today is the day where the FDA cleared the use of uh, paclitaxel again. So it's a historical day after many years of doubts. So essentially, you know, now everyone would be keen to use shock with blood ECB in order to give the best results to the patient. It's a good randomized control trial in a sense that it really takes the patient we usually treat in our labs. It's not like precluding access to this trial to the most difficult ones. Instead, it takes the most difficult ones and include them in order to see which are the results. I even had the company of the stand which I usually use calling me, asking me, why do you use less stands? from 2020 when I started using IVL, because I mean, they were worried that I could use another stent. The only uh, reason was uh, I was stenting less because I was using more shock. Exactly, I, have, I, have, uh, I mean, less stenting, less dissections, so less dissections and equal less stenting, yeah. The European Journal of Vascular and Vascular Surgery published in 2022 a systematic review and meta-analysis of intravascular lithotripsy, which gathered nine studies, only one of which was for a randomized controlled trial. Over 600 patients were included with over 700 treated lesions. The pooled analysis demonstrated a diameter stenosis reduction in almost 60% with rare complications, flow-limiting dissection occurring in only 1.25% of the cases. However, the quality of the evidence was only fair with moderate risk of bias. Nevertheless, it concluded that IVL is an effective and safe approach for calcified plaque modification in lower extremity PAD, but that routine use of this device is not recommended. Further studies are needed to verify this finding. What do you think of the review? Well, I think the review has become uh, obsolete because the only large trial which was included in this paper was this RUCPAT 2 trial, which was just, you know, uses of shockwave as a standalone therapy. And after or, or during the same time, we have the data of uh, more than 1,500 patients in the observational study. So the high quality level data is, is now out there. Yeah. And we need to see this device, as mentioned multiple times now, as, a, as an optimal vessel prep tool in severely calcified lesions. Recently, across the media, I have encountered an ongoing study in eight hospitals in the UK with 94 enrolled patients. Patients were treated with IVL initially and 72 hours after the initial procedure, the CT scan was performed and it revealed microfractures and plaques with no emboli seen and considerable improvement in plaque calcific consistency. Keeping in mind those early findings concerning calcium scoring systems we discussed in the beginning, could you comment on the possible additional value of such studies? I think it tells us again what we've seen in these studies. Again, two if we're treating a patient, yeah, two aspects are very important, and it's safety and efficacy. Yeah? And when we see these kind of CT scans and follow that there is no, almost no embolization or dissection, and you can clearly see these kind of micro fractures in your calcium, which then again, vessel compliance is key. Yeah, IVL is, uh, I think also for Lorenzo, as he mentioned before, is, is my first option when I treat severely calcified lesions. All right, we are reaching the end of our podcast. Any final comments or messages to our listeners? 
Well, there's uh, one uh, area where I, I've, I did not mention it uh, yet. Even uh, if you are performing EVAR, TVAR, BVAR, FIVAR cases, um, and you have calcified hostile access, uh, it is also a good use to use the IVL catheter prior to uh, endograft delivery. It will go up much smoother, you will require less uh, covered stents, no paving and cracking whatsoever. And uh, I can't mention it enough, oversize, oversize, oversize. And overlap. So the two O's. <laughs> okay, that's what we will try to remember. Two O's from Michel. Lorenzo. Exactly. For me, like uh, I can't agree more with him. Essentially, it's it's important. It's a very simple device to use. Just few tips and tricks, you know, the, to succeed is uh, oversize and overlap, as he said already. And also to be confident that you can treat also uh, calcified lesions which are eccentric and which are and which are uh, uh, also subintimal. Another important important thing like you can treat especially at the level of the common femoral or the tibial vessels bifurcations without the need for standing so i talk about common femoral artery at the level of the profonda uh, or always that the tp trunk at the level of the origin of the anterior tibial uh, shockwave permits you to achieve a better compliance without the need for complex stenting that can make uh, your further treatment more difficult thank you both for sharing your time and knowledge with us it has been a very interesting and educational discussion Thanks a lot, Mike. Ciao. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. And as always, thank you all for listening. Make sure to check all of the ESVS podcasts and all media platforms. Open access. We will be back soon with more topics and more experts. Bye.